we continue our look at the book of Ezra. Uh, we will be moving next week into Nehemiah. Just to remind you that Ezra and Nehemiah in the original Hebrew text uh, was one long account together. And uh, our English Bibles separate them into two. So really it's the same account that's just going to continue on next week uh, with a different leader named Nehemiah. And this morning we finish our look at really the first part of this restoration that happens in uh, Judah and in Jerusalem with uh, the man named Ezra. Just a reminder, Ezra uh, was a priest. Ezra had a, a, an impressive lineage. He was a, a leader. He was a, a man who was uh, very studious and loved the word of God, loved studying the word of God, and had a passion uh, to go to Judah and to the city of Jerusalem and to teach and instruct the returned exiles in the word of God. And so Ezra went to King Artaxerxes. Uh, he probably served in Artaxerxes' royal court, and he asked permission to go back to uh, Jerusalem and to instruct the people of Israel. And as we saw last week, Ezra brought uh, his word with him, the word of God, and he went around presumably for about four months and instructed the people in the word of God. And, and what we saw is that the people ended up confessing their sin, the sin that they had married foreign pagan wives from the surrounding nations, wives that uh, did not follow the law of God, that, that were idolaters, that was uh, explicitly God's word had commanded them not to do. And when we last saw Ezra at the end of chapter 9, he had torn his clothes, he had pulled hair from his head and from his beard, and he had essentially laid himself prostrate before the temple, the rebuilt temple, and cried out and confessed the sins of the people to God. Well, again, we finish the book of Ezra today. Our text is Ezra chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open them up. Now, <clears throat> Ezra 10, a large section of this is a long list of names. Again, those names are important because it tells us that this is a historical document, that these were real people that existed, that had families, that had lineages. I'm not going to read that list, though. I'll spare us both the time and my bad pronunciation of the names. So we're going to read Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 19, and then I will skip forward to verse 44 to close it out. Ezra chapter 10, here's the word of God. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel. For the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God 
and put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you have broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashel, and Jeziah, the son of Tekvah, opposed this, and Meshulam and Shebathai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Messiah, Eleazar, Jerob, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. And then skip to verse 44. After the list of names, all these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. So Ezra, if you picture him, he's a mess. Again, his clothes are torn, his hair is ripped out. He is weeping and crying and praying before the temple. And the text says that a very great assembly of men, women, and children gather to him from out of Israel while he's doing this, and they weep bitterly. Now again, to think back on on what has transpired so far, Ezra has been there for four months. And in four months' time, he has essentially gone around and taught the word of God. And as I mentioned last week, it was the teaching of the Word of God, the instruction from the Word of God that led to inward conviction in the heart 
and to outward confession of sin. And as I mentioned last week, it is God's word, the preached word, that exposes hidden sin in our hearts, that convicts us of sin and leads to confession. Well, notice here that that if it was the preached word that brought about conviction of sin and confession of sin, it seems that it's prayer that brings about repentance from sin. Now, really, it's it's all of these things combined, but I want to focus right now on the prayer. Because if you think about it, Ezra is a man of stature. Ezra is a man of importance. He's a man of relative power. He's come from the royal court of King Artaxerxes with a mandate from the king to bring about these changes. And it seems to me that Ezra could have shown up on the scene with human authority. He could have shown up on the scene with human uh, coercion, with human power. He could have brought prestige and influence. He probably could have brought threats. And all of these things had he done that, probably would have brought about some measure of outward conformity to what Ezra was saying. It probably would have brought about outward compliance. But instead, Ezra hasn't done any of this. Ezra has come preaching and teaching the word of God and spending his time in prayer. And notice that through the teaching of the word of God and through prayer, the officials first come to him and confess to him, and then men, women, and children gather to him and weep with him. This man, Shechaniah, confesses him to him and encourages him to act. And then proclamation is made throughout Israel while Ezra is inside a room praying during the proclamation. In other words... It's as though coercion and threats, human power, can bring about outward compliance. But it's only God's power. It's only God's supernatural power that can bring about inward transformation and inward desire for change. When we think about the church and the work of the pastor, as I As I looked at this text and last week's text, I thought about the work of the pastor. The work of the pastor, the Bible says, is to teach and preach the word of God and prayer. It says in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And in Acts 6, you see that they set aside and choose deacons the diaconate why it says so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word god's church changed hearts transformation of hearts and the building of the church is built not through the power of men not through ingenuity not through ideas of pastors and and cool Uh, ideas that pastors bring to the table. The church is built through the teaching of the word of God and to prayer. And that is because, precisely because, it is not the pastor that builds the church. Christ says, I will build my church 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And when the church is built through the preached word and through prayer, then it is clear that God is the one doing the building. It was Ezra's preaching that brought about conviction and confession, and it is Ezra's prayer that brings about repentance. Now, when we think about repentance, we throw that word around a lot. We've probably heard it if you've been in church long enough. When we say repentance, what do we mean by that? Well, if you open up your bulletin and you go back to our confession of faith from earlier, you'll see that we actually asked the question and gave the answer, what is repentance? What is repentance unto life? Look at the answer. Repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, having truly realized his sin and grasped the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Now we're going to spend some time here. Uh, don't worry. Uh, we're going to go through the rest of the, the chapter pretty quickly. But notice here, as we think about repentance, as we think about these first couple of verses, notice that when we see our answer here, true repentance begins with God's grace. You look at our answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace. Repentance itself is a grace. And that means that you cannot truly repent. You cannot repent biblically unless God by his power has changed your heart. If God doesn't sovereignly work in your heart, you cannot repent. Again, Ezra could have brought about outward conformity, but it is only God who brings about inward conformity. And I think this is something, not only pastors, but I think all Christians really need to grasp hold of. Because when we think about, just think about your life. There are probably people that you either know personally in your life or don't know, but would like to see change happen in their life. Maybe it's family members that don't know the Lord. Maybe it's a child that is rebelling against what they were taught at home as growing up in a Christian home. Maybe it's people in our society that are wreaking havoc in our society. Maybe it's your own self. Maybe you see sin in your own life that you say, yeah, I wish I could just change. I keep going after the same sin. What's going to cause change? When we think about this, it's all due to hardness of heart. It's all due to sin in, heart, in, in, in people's hearts. And you will not be able to create the change that you want to see in people's hearts. You need to go to God and ask him to change hearts. That is a very difficult thing for me to really believe and do. I am someone that wants to create change in my own power. And so this, even as a pastor, is important, but I think it's important for all of us to grasp. I remember uh, as a teenager, uh, my dad got me started lifting weights when I was 16. By the time I was about 17 or 18, I was still living at home, uh, and I had a stack of bodybuilding magazines next to my bed. 
about three feet high. And my dad, every once in a while, would knock on my door, and, and I'd call him in, and he would peek his head in my room, and he'd say, hey, how's it going? And I'd say, yeah, things are going well. And he'd say, ask me a few questions, and then he'd say, hey, how's your Bible reading going? You keeping up with God's Word? And I'd say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm reading God's Word. And I was, but he said he would look at my stack next to my bed, and my Bible would be about two-thirds of the way down in that stack with about eight bodybuilding magazines on top, of the on top of the Bible. What's interesting to me, unbeknownst to me, is that my dad never got on my case about it. He never, never badgered me. He never said, hey, it doesn't look like you're really reading your Bible that well. It doesn't look like you're really trying. You really need to, I want to see you pull your Bible out right now. I want to see you open it up. He'd say, all right, sounds good. And he would walk out of my room, and then he told me, unbeknownst to me, he would go in his bedroom and pray. Because he saw me as basically an immature Christian, which is what I was. I wasn't really growing in my faith. I was way more interested in, in other things than, 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 than reading and understanding the Word of God. And he prayed for years. Until one day, the Lord, by his own working and his own circumstances, and I could, if any of you are interested, come and ask me the story. It's a good story. But the Lord changed my heart and made me much more interested in growing in my faith. Notice here that in repentance, in our answer, it is by God's grace, begins there, but true repentance has four components. First of all, the sinner realizes his sin. Second of all, the sinner grasps the mercy of God in Christ. Third of all, the sinner grieves and hates his sin. And fourth, the sinner turns from sin to obedience to God. And if we look at verses 2 and 3 of our passage, this statement by Shechaniah, you basically see that his statement is a model of repentance. <clears throat> First of all, the sinner realizes his sin. <clears throat> Notice that the first words out of Shechaniah's mouth has nothing to do with yet how they've treated another person horizontally speaking. The first words out of Shechaniah's mouth are, we have broken faith with our God. Our confession of sin this morning that we read responsibly is from Psalm 51. When we remember what David did in his sin, he sinned grievously against both Uriah the Hittite, with whose wife he committed adultery, and then had the man murdered, and Uriah was one of David's mighty men and most loyal men. He not only had him murdered, but he also basically abused Bathsheba. And yet, when David went into repentance, obviously he knew he had sinned grievously against these two people. But when he went to confess his sin to God, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. David understood that sin, before it is against anyone else, it is primarily against God that we sin. Sin as we said in question 24, is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, one of the interesting things he points out is that when Jesus is walking the earth in his incarnate 
form. He walks up to people he's never met before in his life, who he's never had a a conversation with before in his life. And he'll say to that person, I forgive all of your sins against him. And C.S. Lewis says, how in the world is that possible? How can a man forgive someone else's sin that they've never met, that they've sinned against other people? Doesn't make any sense. The only sin that we can forgive is a sin that somebody commits against us. But C.S. Lewis said that in and of itself proves that Jesus is God. Because when Jesus goes and forgives some person's sin that he's never met before, what he's saying is, every sin that you've committed has been against me. Because I am the one chiefly involved in your sin and the one chiefly sinned against. Notice that that Shechaniah names the sin. He knows he's sinned and broken faith with God because he says we've married foreign women from the peoples of the land. He's going back to God's law. Deuteronomy 7, as I mentioned last week, when the people entered the promised land, God made it very specific. You shall not marry foreign women, for they will turn your hearts against God if they are pagan. Again, if they convert to the faith, then they can marry them. I mentioned that last week. They had broken God's law, and Shechaniah, first of all, is realizing that sin is against God. But notice here, and this is what's interesting about repentance, is that repentance involves not only a recognition of sin, but it grasps the mercy of God in Christ. Repentance must grasp the mercy of God in Christ, or else it's not repentance, it's simply despair. Notice that the second thing Shechaniah says is after saying we've broken faith with God, he said, but even now there is hope in Israel despite all of this. He knows that God is holy. He knows that God has given his law. He knows that they have broken God's law, but he also knows that God is a God of mercy and of grace. How would he know that? I mean, he obviously knows God's law. But how would you know that God is a God of mercy? Well, we find it all throughout the same Old Testament. The same Old Testament that he would have read God's law says things like this. The Lord is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Paul in Romans chapter 2. Paul is essentially leveling everybody. He says in Romans chapter 2, everyone is condemned by God's law. Everyone is guilty under God's law. Even those of you who think you're innocent, you're not. And yet, what does he say in Romans chapter 2 verse 4? It is God's kindness that is leading you to repentance. Not God's Justice is kindness that leads you to repentance. Shechaniah realizes his sin and he grasps God's mercy. The sinner, furthermore, when he repents, grieves and hates his sin. Now, you don't really see this in Shechaniah's statement, but obviously he's one of the people weeping and grieving along with Ezra. There is, Scripture says, a worldly grief 
and there is a godly grief. Both things exist. Worldly grief and godly grief. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7.10, it is godly grief that leads to repentance and salvation without regret. It is worldly grief that leads to death. What's the difference? Well, godly grief is not simply feeling bad. A lot of people feel bad about what they've done. Probably everyone in this world feels bad about things they've done. And that's because God, the Bible says, has implanted his law in every human heart. That means we have a conscience. That means we know when we do wrong. When we do wrong and we wrong other people, we feel bad about it. That's not godly grief. Godly grief is not even, as I said, remorse. People can feel bad. People can even sink to a place where they greatly uh, have great remorse over what they've done. But we see in Scripture an example of remorse, great remorse over something that did not lead to repentance. We see it in Judas. Judas had great remorse for what he did to Jesus and betraying him, but rather than repent, he ran out and killed himself. Worldly grief produces death. Godly grief, grieving and hating sin, leads to repentance, which leads to salvation. What is that godly grief? Well, you look at the fourth thing. The sinner turns from his sin to obedience to God. A godly grief creates in a person's heart the desire to turn away from the sin that is grieving them and turn to obedience to God. Look at what Shechaniah says. He's not just, have we sinned against God and, and there's hope and, and I'm grieving over my sin, but therefore, let us make a covenant with God. Let us put away these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and let it be done according to the law. When there is true repentance, the sinner turns away from whatever is sinful and turns towards God and obedience. And notice, to repent here, to turn away, means to put away the foreign wives and their children. Now, a few points to be made. Because when we hear this, uh, we probably wonder how this is godly. I mean, this sounds harsh. <clears throat> well, it was. But let's remember a few things. First of all, remember when we were going through Malachi. Malachi quite possibly has already been prophesying to these people in their sin. What does Malachi say? Malachi doesn't say divorce is fine, divorce is easy. Join in whenever you feel like it. Malachi actually says God hates divorce. We're not talking about something that God takes lightly. What did Jesus say about divorce when he was talking to the Pharisees? They came up and said, hey, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Jesus said, no. What, did it, what, what does it say about marriage? You know the word of God. God created them male and female. He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. What God has joined together, let no man separate, Jesus said. 
Then they said, well, why did Moses then allow divorce? Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. That's not God's intent in marriage. It's because of sin that divorce is even allowed. And Jesus said, look, you, there, except for sexual immorality and an actual breaking of the covenant, divorce isn't allowed. So what's going on here? Well, Gordon Hugenberger, uh, an Old Testament scholar who's written a lot on the covenant of marriage and divorce and all of that, he points out something very interesting. He says that the phrase that is used here, to put away, that phrase, to put away these foreign wives, is not the normal Hebrew word that is used for divorce. It's a different word. It's not the normal one. And he says, similarly, the word that's used here for marriage is not the normal Hebrew word used for marriage. So what he says here is the writer's choice of language seems to indicate that he does not regard the unions as legitimate marriages or the sending away as actual divorce. One scholar says this, We must keep the differences between Deuteronomy 24 and Ezra 10.3 in mind. Foreign women were married contrary to the law of God. These marriages, therefore, were illegal from the outset. The sending away of the women is to guard the exiles against the continuation of an illegal act. With their foreign wives, they continued to live in sin. So in other words, if we go back and read Malachi, what these men had done was they had illegally and unbiblically left the wives of their youth. They had actually unbiblically divorced the wives they should have stayed married to and joined themselves in a, in a not real marriage with pagan women that they should have never been with in the first place. And so the point is, is that these were illegal unions to begin with. That's the first thing we need to understand. The second thing we need to understand is that what's going on here shows the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, and this is something we could talk about for months, but just briefly, the Old Covenant was the Mosaic theocracy. The Old Covenant began with the Mosaic law, and it continued until Christ came on the scene and died, fulfilled the law, and ascended, at which time began the new covenant. The old covenant was tied to the land. It was a theocracy. And there will one day be a theocracy again. When Christ returns in his second coming, we read clearly in the Bible, he will set up another theocracy where he will reign as king And everyone on the new earth will live under his reign. And everyone on the new earth will perfectly obey their king. And that's because we'll all be glorified. Everyone who's on the new earth will obey because we will all be perfect and obey. And as you read in scripture, everyone who is not in Christ, when Christ sets up his second theocracy, will be excluded from the new earth and actually banished into hell. 
That's what's coming. The old covenant under the theocracy of Moses was a foreshadowing of what is to come. Anyone who did not abide by the law of God was banished from that society. We are living in the new covenant. The new covenant, or what we might call the church age, the church is not living under a theocracy. The Bible, well, we're living under a spiritual theocracy. Christ is building his kingdom. We are following his laws. But the church is what the Bible says, living in exile right now. We are like the Israelites when they were exiled and living in Babylon. We are not under a theocracy. We don't expect our surrounding society to be in any way following Christ's commands. We don't expect our leaders to be in any way following Christ's commands. It's like we're living in Babylon. And so what does Paul say to the church in the new covenant? Well, Paul instructs Christians who are married to non-Christians to stay in that marriage. Paul says, if you are a Christian and you are with a non-Christian who does not commit adultery or abandon you in some way or, or ab- abdicate his or her responsibility, then you should not divorce her. He says... If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. That's the plan under the new covenant. Now, that being said, the the standard that Christians should not seek out a marriage with an unbeliever is still in effect. As I mentioned last week, Paul says clearly, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He says clearly, marry in the Lord. However, sometimes you might two unbelievers might get married and one unbeliever becomes a Christian. The other one's still an unbeliever. In that case, you don't divorce. Maybe you marry someone that you think is a Christian who claims to be. You find out later they're not. If they consent to live with you, you don't divorce them. This was not the case in the Old Covenant. The last thing I want to say about this is that obviously all of this seems maybe simple on paper, but we have to understand that all of this involved hardship. These were real relationships. These were men who had taken women as wives. They, they had had children together. They had built a life together, and these men were walking away from all of that. Now, even though in the New Covenant we don't have that exact thing as a model for us, we do have that concept. We find all throughout the New Testament the concept that repenting from your old life and turning to Christ involves the concept of being willing to walk away from anyone and anything in this life that you love greatly because you love Christ more. That is clearly a concept. True repentance involves counting the cost, which can be huge. Jesus, in fact, says that turning to him and following him could cost you your very life, and you need to be willing to give that up. 
Jesus said, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding that one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had in order to obtain that one pearl of great value. The concept of counting the cost and being willing to lose everything in this world to gain Christ is still and always has been a component of true repentance. And that's why, circling back to the beginning, true repentance is a saving grace. Because there is no way, humanly speaking, that any of us have the power in and of ourselves and the strength to do that. I think in and of ourselves, there's no way we have the power to walk away from everything that we hold dear in this life to follow Christ. It's only through the power of God. I just want to make one final point, and then we're going to wrap up in a minute. One final point. Scholar after scholar after scholar did make this point, which I think is important to point out. Is that the actual effect... Uh, on these wives, these illegitimate wives, these pagan women, the effect on their lives of putting them away would have been to send them back to their families of origin. And scholar after scholar said that they would have been sent back to their non-Jewish families from which they came and which they would, and which would have been flexible enough to receive them. So just to be clear, they weren't left destitute. They were sent back to their families of origin. Now a couple of just wrap up things here in verses 6 to 8. We see that everyone is given three days to show up and confess their sin. That was plenty of time for people to show up given the size of Israel. The people assemble on a day very different than today. They assemble on a freezing cold day, December 19th. 457 BC, we know the exact date. It's during the rainy season and it's freezing cold. And the picture that you have here is that the people are standing in a freezing cold downpour listening to this and confessing the sin that they've done. The people agree to separate themselves from the foreign women. Except you see, maybe... Uh, A little bit of opposition here in verse 15. It's a very difficult verse to translate and understand. We're not sure what these men are opposed to. We're not sure who's supporting what. But there could have been essentially four people that were opposed to this decision. Notice in verses 16 to 44 that this work is begun quickly. There is no hesitation to walk away and turn away from the sin. It's begun without delay. But notice that the work is not done flippantly. It's done meticulously. There are 110 cases listed in verses 18 to 44. But it took 
three months to work through all the cases, which means that it took about two per day that they went through meticulously in order to work through each case. And when they finally produced the list here, notice the order. The high priest family is listed first in verses 18 to 19. The other priests are 20, 20 to 22, then the Levites, then the singer and the gateskeepers, and then finally the laity. It was the leadership that came forward first and was listed first as having broken God's law. Well, I'll conclude with saying this. It was about a year after Ezra set out to head to Jerusalem, a year from that date, that the word of God was preached, that Ezra prayed, and that this massive repentance took place. And yet still, as Ezra wraps up, there's still a sense of sadness, isn't there? And I think we'll see that even when Nehemiah wraps up. Even though there's this kind of great repentance that happens, it's still sad. And we still see kind of a world and a, and a, and a group of people, this kind of ragtag group of exiles that are struggling to obey God's law. The people have repented, but how long until they fall into sin again? For the next 400 years, Ezra and Nehemiah were the last books, along with uh, the post-exilic prophets. And then for the next 400 years, Israel is going to struggle. They're going to be uh, basically ruled by the Persians and the Greeks, and finally Rome. They're going to fall into sin. And, and even the most religious among them, the Pharisees, are really going to turn out to be more self-righteous than they are truly righteous. And so what we find at the, at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah is that what we really need is a new covenant. All of this took place in the shadow of the rebuilt temple. And what we need is not an external law and an external temple, but a new covenant. And that's exactly what God promised and was brought 400 years later in the person of Christ. I'll close with this. Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, this is the covenant I will make. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In Christ, that hope has become reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into your word and lord we pray that you would encourage and strengthen each one of us to come to you in repentance we pray that through your spirit you would bring us to a place of repentance and we pray that you would grow your church that we may become more and more like christ we thank you for the new covenant brought in christ we pray all this in jesus name amen